Well, I'm delighted to say that uh, joining me on the Godcast today is a gentleman who needs little introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. With me is Jeffrey Archer, who is um, an esteemed author, a renowned politician, and a man of many talents. He has sold um, book sales passing 275 million copies, and um, I believe he's one of the few authors to have been a number one bestseller in uh, more than 19 times. Jeffrey, it's really wonderful to uh, have you on the Godcast today. How are you? I'm very well, and thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure. It's wonderful to have you on. Whereabouts are you, Jeffrey, in the world today? Just share with our, our viewers I, where you are. I'm, I'm sitting in my study in Lambeth, overlooking the Thames. You can't see the Thames, uh, but I'm actually in my study, not where I write. I don't write in London. Uh, I find too much is going on. Uh, so I'm more likely to be writing in my home in Mallorca or uh, uh, in Cambridge. Yeah, Jeffrey, do you, do you prefer to, to write in, in, in complete stillness? Is that your preferred choice? So, so not just the, the surroundings, but actually when you're writing as well? Or... Very much. I don't like any sound at all. There's the room I have overlooking the sea. I look up and all I see is the ocean. There's no telephones. Uh, it's a, a room built into a cliff, so it's never near the house. And I am do four sets of two hours every day, six o'clock to eight, 10 o'clock to 12, two o'clock to four, six o'clock to eight, bed about 9.30, 10, up again at five. And so no peace and quiet for me, solitude is all important. Yes, yes. And, and, and Jeffrey, I was wondering, what is more exciting for you regarding the book? Is it when, you, when, you've, when you're in your place of quiet and the book's finished? Or is it actually about now when the book's about to be um, shared with the public? Well, what's, your, what's your kind of joy in all, all of this? Well, I can answer that accurately because today, literally today, my editor at HarperCollins, Kate Elton, will be reading my next book for the first time. And she will be the only person who has actually read it. And I hope you shall have read it by this evening or tomorrow. Uh, and that for any author is the worst <laughs> 24 hours really? of your life. Uh, what you see in front of you is the latest book coming out in 10 days time, which is finished. Mm -hmm. And I have to uh, think very carefully when you ask questions about it, because for the last year during COVID, I've been working on the next book. So the answer to your question is, this is the worst period. I will wait until she rings me tomorrow and gives me a clue how she feels about it. Uh, I suspect for an author, that's the worst moment. The best moment is when you're physically handed the book. You physically have it for the first time and you can see it is a book. Despite having written 30 books, that will never stop being truly exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, and then of course, as you raise the subject, you wait for the bestsellers list uh, and the public tell you what you think and you can't bluff that. They're, they're very kind or very cruel, however you look at it, mm -hmm. but there it is on the bestsellers list Then you can't argue. Jeffrey, I've got to, I've got to ask you this as a as a as a gentleman who's had so many bestsellers. When you're uh, are are you still um, 
are you agreeable to constructive criticism on 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 something you've written or or you know of a man with your kind of uh, back catalogue as it were you know you, i suppose you don't want people to just go yes jeffrey it's wonderful no that's the last thing i want and i really enjoy a well written critic mm-hmm. very much indeed uh, i have a tendency to be fairly skeptical about other authors who write. I do like professional critics and it's easier when you're a foreigner. So I read very carefully what the Americans say, what the French, the Germans, the Italians say, uh, because they, the answer to your question is they continue to teach me. They continue to tell me something I may have missed. Uh, you're a complete fool if you've, you think you're beyond learning. Yeah. And, and what is the joy for you, Jeffrey, as as a writer? Is it is it getting the idea, or is it the actual? You know, I was wondering, I was wondering when, um, if somebody like yourself starts uh, with the end in the head already, or whether it's something that you allow room for your imagination to unwind. Very much the latter. I'm lucky if I know the first three pages, and it do- and when it does unwind. Um, I, I consider myself very lucky that I don't just stop and say, it's all over, I can't do it anymore. But I'm a storyteller, Alex, not a writer. Mm-hmm. And so I rely on, frankly, what is a God-given gift. Mm. Uh, anyone who's well-educated, well-read, well-informed can be a good writer. I think a storytelling is a God-given gift, much as being a ballerina is, much as playing the violin is, much as painting a picture is, you can't pop down to Marks and Spencer's and, and buy a packet of storytelling. No. And, and do, do you surprise yourself sometimes, Jeffrey, where your imagination takes you? Do, you? do you kind of sit back and go, gosh, how did how did that come about? Yes, every day. You're writing a paragraph, you can't quite see where you're going, and suddenly one sentence comes that switches it off in a totally different direction. And you have to follow that. You can't say, no, no, you've got to go with it. And even if it makes it more difficult for you and you've got to pause, if it's exciting enough to get the reader captured and tense, then you must go with it. What they see when they see the 14th draft, the book in your hand is the 14th draft. Mm -hmm. Uh, They see the finished work. They don't see the 14 times you've been back to it to try and get it sharper, faster. Uh, and so the answer to your question is, I never know where I'm going, and I'm very thankful that it does go somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely. And this this is the new book here, which you kindly sent me a, a copy of, over my uh, dead body. And and this is the third. That's right, Jeffrey, isn't it in the series? Uh, but you you you're you're writing. There's there's more to come of this of this character, isn't there? Yes. Uh, when I reached the age of seventy, which you know better than anyone. Uh, the maker said was the contract, Uh, I asked him if he'd be kind enough to let me um, write the Clifton Chronicles. And when I got to 77, 78, and had completed the Clifton Chronicles, I asked him again if I might be allowed to do a series on William Warwick. And William Warwick, as you know, is a detective in the Metropolitan Police. When he was at school, he wanted to join the Metropolitan Police, But his father, a lawyer, distinguished QC, 
wants him to go to Oxford and read law, but he defies his father and does join the police as a constable. And in book one, Nothing Ventured, you see him as a constable on the beat before he becomes a detective in the arts and antique squad. And every book is an individual book. But what I think I've done that is different is every book takes a different crime and every book for William Warwick is a new rank. So you're on book four, Over My Dead Body. Book one, he's a constable. Book two, he's a detective sergeant. Book three, he's a detective inspector. And in Over My Dead Body, he's a detective chief inspector. And if I live long enough and I have to get to the age of 86 to do it, he will become commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. He's well capable of doing it. It's whether I can live to 86. <laughs> I'm sure you will. You look, you look absolutely in fine fettle, Geoffrey. And, yes, and let me you. ask, do you, and, and thinking that far ahead, do you have the story in your mind? Obviously it's not written, but is the story there kind of waiting to go? Well, I know, for example, in book one, it was art fraud. And I was particularly interested in the theft of a major Rembrandt. In book two, it was drugs. And I became fascinated by drug barons and the harm they're doing in London, of course, all over the country. And so I had to do a lot of research with a, a superintendent who'd been head of the drug squad. Book, book three uh, is, about the is about police corruption. And book four, the one you have there, he's promoted to detective chief inspector and joins the murder squad. So I knew it was going to be a book about murder. And so the brain was thinking for a year, certainly six months, what aspect of it would I take? And decided that he would do un four unsolved cases, four cases the police didn't think they could spend their time on or didn't think were soluble, sol solvable. So I then had to think up the four cases and link them all together so that there is a theme for William Warwick to go on. Yeah. So I knew that much, but not much more. Okay. Okay. Je Jeffrey, I've, um, I've been telling a few friends of mine and colleagues that I, we were going to be meeting today. And what, one thing uh, that I have to say is clear about you is that whilst not everybody may um, um, be in uh, the same wavelengths as you politically, you have a huge amount of fans as an author. What, what, what inspired you to write the first book? Were, were, you, were you an avid reader as a young man or, 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 or were you a storyteller before a reader? Well, you don't know you're a storyteller until you pick up the pen, Alex. No one finds that out mm. until they pick up the pen. The answer to your first question is I think I've always been a left-wing Tory. So many right-wing Labour and right-wing socialists and I really, you couldn't put a paper thin between us. And I've had many friends in the Labour Party over the years. In fact, it's a great distress for me. And I suspect for someone like you, that we seem to have lost that ability for the two sides to talk to each other. If I may give you an example. Uh, when I was running the constituencies, I once did a tour of Scotland and during the tour, John Smith 
who was then a uh, shadow business secretary, had a heart attack and went into Edinburgh General. And I rang up the matron and said, may I come and see him? And of course, I 100% understand if he felt it was inappropriate. Within half an hour, uh, matron was back on the phone saying, how soon can you get here? So I went in to see John. We went into the House of Commons at roughly the same time. And uh, uh, we were on different sides, but uh, we didn't fight each other. And I sat on the end of the bed and listened to what he had to say. And we had discussions. And in fact, he said, I've just chosen two young people to join the shadow business group. I've invited Tony Blair and Gordon Brown to join me in the business section. And I can tell you now, Jeffrey, you'd be wise to keep your eye on them. But what I'm really getting at, Alex, is that I was able to sit on the end of the bed. I was able to chat to him. Mm -hmm. And I think it's sad that, well, we don't seem to be able to do that at the moment. No, no, I, I agree. And I've, I've interviewed a number of politicians and I've uh, had a conversation with Alistair Campbell about this. I said, I think we've lost the... Well, Alistair's a classic example. <laughs> I saw Alistair last week at a party mm -hmm. and we... we must have had 20 minutes discussing the state of both parties. Mm -hmm. He was open, interesting, and fascinating to listen to. And I came away with a lot of interesting knowledge. But that was because in the days when uh, Tony Blair was up against John Major, I was able to speak to him then and to Peter Mandelson. I knew they were the deadly enemy who had to be killed, but it didn't stop us having a chat over a pint. That's what I think has gone. Yes, I, I, I think I think you're right. And and, and just going and, and um, Jeffrey, you you said you entered politics. You were only a young guy, weren't you? You were in your tw late twenties, were you, when you went into? Far too young, Alex. The biggest really? mistake I ever made in my life was, it? was entering the House of Commons at the age of twenty nine. And when young MPs come to see me and say, Jeffrey, I want to be a member of Parliament, guide me, which is always very flattering. But for example, when Sajid Javid, Nadim Zahawi, Priti Platel, uh, Toby Elwood, uh, Kwasi Kwarteng came to sit down with me and say, I want a career in politics. I begged them not to make the same mistake as I had. And indeed, all of them were much nearer 40 when they entered the house and they got into the cabinet very quickly indeed. And it's the better way to do it now is to enter the house in your late 30s, 40s, and start a career then, because if you're any damn good, they'll spot you. Yeah. And, and do, do, you, do you look at, um, with your experience, Jeffrey, when you look at politics now, do, do you look at it with, with optimism or, or a sense of disappointment? It, it seems to me that um, politics is more about um, popularity contests now rather than actually you know, some kind of deep dive in politics. We don't seem to get that anymore. And everybody's accountable, either accountable for something or something else. Just wondering what your thoughts were with, with your wisdom. Well, the, 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 we don't, with the Margaret Thatcher situation, if I dared to say to her, a focus group has suggested, Prime Minister, I think I'd have been out the door. She believed in things, she stood by them and went for them. I think we do rely a lot now on focus groups. We do rely not a lot now on people who have opinion. I mean, the woke situation is a classic one, which is becoming very, very powerful uh, and is guiding us as to, uh, guiding politicians as to how they should think. There's an excellent article in the Times today uh, 
by uh, uh, suggesting that perhaps we should be thinking this through more carefully if we want our young people to actually have opinions of their own, heaven forbid. And uh, that, that I find interesting. The other part of your question is, one always wonders when you're very old, and I am very old, if your generation were more impressive or better. But my first foreign secretary was Alec Douglas Hume. My second foreign secretary uh, was Peter Carrington. My third foreign secretary was Douglas Hurd. And I did feel that I was in the presence of a giant with all three of them. And they were representing our country in a very competent way. If your question says, do you think that's still there? It's tough for it to be there, Alex, and I'll explain why. If, and, and it's no use writing, getting your people to write me letters saying you don't understand, Jeffrey. I've tried desperately to understand, but you can't be a member of parliament if you have three children and live in London. At the salary wouldn't get you a bus stop let alone somewhere to live. Mm. I mean, it's just out of the question. And it's become bonkers, but we can't get the best people. And if I may pre prove my point, I addressed the Kit Kat Club many years ago. And that's a group of women who have made managing director or chairman before the age of 40. And I was in a room at the mansion house with 150 of these remarkable women. And they were all had opinions to give. Of course they did. But the one that shook me most was when I said to one of them, why don't you become a member of parliament? You'd obviously get in the cabinet immediately. And she said, Jeffrey, I'm currently earning quarter of a million a year and I have two boyfriends and I don't want to see their names on the front page of the Daily Mail. And I thought, well, how many people are saying words to that effect? Now it doesn't stop exceptional members of parliament who do devote their life to constituencies I can name several on both sides of the house who are devoted to their constituents and give a good job and think quite rightly what a privilege it is to be there. But if you want the most able people in the land to run Great Britain Limited, I suggest you start looking for managing directors and chairmen who are capable of doing that job. Okay. Can I get my point over? <laughs> Just about, Jeffrey. Just about. Just about. <laughs> Jeffrey, Jeffrey, I'd like to ask you this question, please. Um, you said you're you're of a certain vintage. Who, who's been who's been the greatest prime minister of your lifetime? Would you say, Margaret Thatcher? I had eleven years serving Margaret Thatcher, and of course, I'm prejudiced. She uh, was a close friend, as well as dare I say, as well as me being a minor. Uh, politician who uh, did as I was told. But after her career ended, I was one of the people, uh, one of, looking back on it now, one of the few people who stood by her when the others ran away. And we remained close friends to her death. In fact, the association is equal on both sides of my family, because my wife, Mary, who is uh, currently chairman of the Science Museum, was a scientist like Margaret, and the coincidence, they'd both been to Oxford. Uh, Margaret had studied at Somerville College, Oxford, and my wife had taught at Somerville College, Oxford, and they both read chemistry 
as a first degree. So they had an association that had nothing to do with me, which I suppose was a double reason uh, we became friends. Yeah. Je Jeffrey, I don't, I don't know if this question has been asked before, but, but was, was Margaret Thatcher a lady of forgiveness? You know, um, once she was out of office and, and um, she, well, she didn't really slip away into, in, you know, quietly, but, but, but in those... She was incapable of slipping away quietly, Alex. Absolutely. But was she a lady of forgiveness? Uh, you know, did, did she... Uh, was she bitter about what happened or, or did she put it to bed? She was, for a, a bit as a tough word, she was very disappointed. I remember the day she left Downing Street and we took her to uh, the flat she would be occupying with Dennis while they sorted things out. And indeed, the permanent secretary, the cabinet secretary at the time, uh, Sir Robin Butler, now Lord Butler, said this must never happen again. And I said, what do you mean, Cabinet Secretary? And he said, we must never have a prime minister walking out of the front door not knowing where they're going to live. These things should be sorted out. And of course, that's British politics. When you lose the job as prime minister, it can often be very sudden. So there was that aspect. Uh, and then there was the aspect of those who she thought were friends and thought stand by her and didn't. And in some cases, looking back on it and trying to be neutral, they did feel she 12 years was enough, 11 years was enough. And perhaps it might have been wise. I remember celebrating the uh, 10th anniversary of Margaret Thatcher at number 10 Downing Street. And I was rejoicing. And looking back on it now, I wonder if it might have been wise for her to say, I've done 10 years, presidents of the United States do eight. Most other people do eight years in a job. Perhaps 10 is enough. Though the truth is that if she had won that battle and she only lost it by a handful of votes, there's no doubt she would have gone on to the next election and there's no doubt she'd have gone on after. I think in the end, someone had to get her out. But I can tell you one story, Alex, that shows she did forgive. I had a call from, I think it, I'm going to get the year wrong and you'll forgive me. I think it was her 70th birthday and it may have been her 75th. Uh, and Jeffrey Howe rang me and said, I haven't been invited to her 75th birthday party. Well, Jeffrey Howe was one of the reasons she was brought down. His speech in the House of Commons was politically devastating and was then followed up by, uh, by uh, Heseltine, by Michael Heseltine, uh, creating an election which got rid of her. And I, I, I rang Mrs. Thatcher, Lady Thatcher, as I suspect she was by then, and I said, Margaret, I've had a call, I was quite open about it. I've had a call from Geoffrey Howe, and he wonders if it would be at all possible to attend your 75th. Uh, I think he doesn't want, I think he wants to come. I think he wants to be there. And she said, without hesitation, I'll put an invitation in the post today. I didn't think he would want to come, Jeffrey. Thank you very much indeed. And that was the end of that conversation. So yes, and by the way, Jeffrey Howe did attend, really? attend that and was kind enough to thank me. Yes, Gosh, that's, a, that's a fascinating story. Jeffrey, what, what about yourself? I mean, um, I mean, it's no secret that you, you went to prison because you, you wrote about it, but, but did that experience... Um, make you seek forgiveness yourself? Was, was that an important part of that, that part of your life? I think the biggest thing it did was show me how lucky I was, how privileged I was, what a remarkable life I'd had and would be allowed to continue because uh, the British people are a very forgiving race. 
would be allowed to continue. I mean, there were some people, not very bright, who said, of course, uh, your book sales will collapse. Uh, not least of them uh, was my publisher who got rid of me to allow the next publisher to find out that the next book after that was the biggest bestseller behind Cain and Abel. So I, and I, I guess I learned a tremendous about, amount about things I normally, I don't drink and I don't smoke. So I learned about drugs. I learned about being brought up in a family where mothers are beaten, where children are beaten, where crime is just a part of everyday life. Mm -hmm. I learned that. And of course, in truth, it, it added to the books that I wrote afterwards because I was able to bring that knowledge and experience, firsthand knowledge and experience to my writing. And did that change your um, politics in any way, if that's the right word? No, no I, I have never, Alex, believed in equality. I have all my life believed in equality of opportunity. Mm -hmm. If a government should be doing anything, it should be to give every single person the chance to do the best they possibly can. And I don't care what color they are, what creed they are, what party they support, what religion they're involved in. They should have an equal opportunity through hard work and ability to do well. And do you think we do that, Jeffrey? I'm just no, thinking about... No, no country on earth. I work. No, no, of course you don't. You will see it. What I saw in prison, you'll see every day of your life and you'll see it firsthand and it will have a remarkable influence on you. Of course it will. So the answer to your question is no, I, I don't believe it. I think the United States gets as near as you can to making it possible because they don't have the snobbery we have. Uh, but And that's changed in my lifetime. When I first entered the House of Commons, uh, the snobbery in this country, we were divided into classes. You were lower class, lower middle class, no, lower class, working class, lower middle class, middle class, upper middle class, uh, and it, uh, what, up, up to aristocrat. That's, thank God, has gone. But there are still some people who survive that and still actually believe that people who are born in a certain way should have privileges the rest of us shouldn't. Mm. And I think that's one of the big things that come out of my political career and my mixing with people who do believe in uh, equality, that that bunch of snobs who ran our country for far too long are not behind us. But isn't it wonderful that we have an Indian Chancellor of the Exchequer, we have a Pakistani uh, Secretary of State for Health, we have a Kurd who's running education. I think this is wonderful. That, that's what the best of diversity is. Yeah, that, that's that's interesting to hear, and and that that uh, diversity, Jeffrey. If I can just move on to a few religious religious things, uh, your your number of your books have have had religious connotations. Uh, do, do you think there is um, that politics is perhaps missing a pinch of Christianity these days? Well, I think it always has. Um, Thomas More onwards, I think <laughs> we. There's been a division between uh, politics and the church, and that's not a bad thing. The church should be doing its job properly. Politicians should be doing their job properly. And when the two sides disagree, they should have a discussion about it. I have no problem with that. And in my day, when I first entered the House of Lords, of course, uh, there were many bishops 
sitting on the benches. There aren't as many now. I, I liked the religious input. I liked it coming from that angle, even if I didn't agree with it. I liked to listen to it. So uh, I think that division will always go on. And I'm not sure, Alex, it's not a good thing in any case that it should. Hmm. It's just, I mean, again, I've interviewed a few politicians who, you know, uh, uh, Tim, Tim, um, oh, uh, the liberal, uh, forgive me, Tim, the guy who led the liberals, he, he, he left his role, didn't he, because of his political, uh, his Christian position, really. And, and, oh, it yes. seems, and, um, and it seems there are lots of Christians actually in Parliament, but, but it's kind of a um, taboo subject, isn't it? It doesn't come into the political debate very often. Why do you think that is? Well, taking your first point, isn't it sad that someone felt they had to leave the House of Commons because they were a Christian? Absolutely. I think that's terrible. And I read his statement very carefully indeed and was distressed by it. Uh, Yes, uh, if you stand up in the House of Commons or the House of Lords now and announce boldly you're a Christian, uh, people do listen, but I'm not sure it's uh, easy uh, for a Christian, but then it never has been to stand up and say, I believe in X, Y, or Z, because there'll always be a larger group. I mean, you know, because I sent it to you, I sent you a script I'd written, which arose in the most strange situation. I'd been to an Advent carol service in London Mm -hmm. and heard the exact opposite to what we're getting in the press today. I heard a former chief inspector in the police force, I'm so sorry, detective chief, superintendent in the police force called John Sutherland, one of the finest men I've ever met in my life, who must be just losing sleep over what's happening uh, today with the dreadful Everard case. And I heard him, uh, I heard him reading a lesson, reading a lesson at the Advent service. And the lesson he read concerned the son of God. And I took it, uh, and thought, in the middle of the night, I woke up and thought, because that was 17th century, it was in the 1600s sometime, I'd like to rewrite that. I'd like to see it from another angle, and uh, which is what I did, and of course I sent it to you. Yes, and I shared it on my media pages, and and the response is incredible, and 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 and, and I will share it when I post this interview up, I'll, I'll share that for people to enjoy. And, and you, you wrote that and you done, made the, uh, donations to cancer research that's right isn't it yes yes so i gave it to cancer research for them to use in any way they wish and they put it on their christmas card that's right yeah and and, and yourself jeffrey in, in term you know uh, um i interviewed a, interviewed a guy called chris difford from squeeze and I, and I love the way he described his life he said he was at the other end of the corridor um, and a gentleman of your vintage who is um, some way down the corridor. Has your, has your faith evolved? Has it been a moving feast or are you kind of your position finite now? Well, my mother was a, a seriously practicing Christian. Uh, my wife is chairman of the Guild of Church Musicians, so takes her, uh, her Christianity very seriously. And as I said to you earlier, I, and I say it without thinking sometimes, I think the art of storytelling is a God-given gift. And I'll let you into another little secret, because although I'm not sure if there's a God, and I'm not sure if there is a God, uh, which of our group he represents, I presume he 
represents us all, the Muslims, the Christians, everybody. I think he's sitting up there saying, you've divided among yourselves, but in fact, there's only one of me, because it's going to be really strange that there's a lot of him. Mm. Uh, but I said to you earlier that um, I often say it's a God-given gift, because I can't explain it. But equally, I will tell you, when I'm writing, when a line comes that really thrills me, just one line, mm -hmm. I literally look up and say thank you. And I don't know why. <laughs> I think that's I think that's really lovely. That's so endearing. Well, well, yeah, there, there we are. There's there's maybe something to just you know keep nudging you in the right right direction. Jeffrey, it's been an absolute joy talking to you. I I, I could oh gosh, I could talk to you all day. I know you were um you have a my 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 dad who died from dementia some years ago would be astounded that I'm interviewing you because he, like you, was an athlete. He was a 100-metre runner who ran for the Belgrave Harriers in the... Oh, God the, bless them. The 40s. And um, are you still a fan of the athletics, uh, Jeffrey? Do you still follow the sport? Oh, very much indeed. And uh, very privileged to have run for my country because I wouldn't have been able to do it today. They're now professionals. Mm. Frankly, those of us who ran for Britain in my day were all at university and therefore pampered and lucky, and I wouldn't get anywhere near it today. So yes, my love of athletics, track and field, remains the same. And indeed, it was a Yorkshireman, God bless him, who I shared rooms with called Adrian Metcalf. Uh, you mentioned dementia. Sadly, he was my best man and my closest friend, an Olympic silver medalist and a truly great, some of your older listeners will remember him as a, one of Britain's great quarter milers. And uh, he died of dementia a few weeks ago. And I had to watch him, uh, my best man, not recognizing who I was, mm. not recognizing my wife of 55 years. And it, it was horrible. It was terrible. You, you don't know because the, uh, the medical people haven't yet, they're not quite 100% sure if they can work out anything that's going on. And they tell you to speak as if you're old friends and pretend he can understand everything. But I didn't believe it. I looked at him and thought, you haven't got a clue what's going on here. It's, uh, it, 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 and so that, that was a terrible experience. And anyone else who's going through it, uh, I sympathize with you because Mary and I had five or six years of it. And in his son's words, it was in the end, a blessed relief. Mm. Uh, because it's not dementia is not fun no it's not fun at all Jeffrey it's been a real joy here's the book again it's out very soon and it's going to be available online and in all good bookshops and uh, Jeffrey I just want to thank you so much for your time and thank you for coming on the Godcast thank you I absolutely thank you very much and and more important thank you for the work you're doing in an area of Britain where I'm very aware, because I've traveled in that area many times, there's still a lot to be done. And people should be grateful that people like you give your time, give your energy and your enthusiasm, and indeed your Christian faith to the people you work for. Thank you. That's very generous. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jeffrey. God bless.